Our sermon text is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, I'll read verses 8 through the beginning of 13, though we'll focus on 8 through 11. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we uh, come to hear from you this evening. Uh, We thank you that we can uh, end this day listening to your voice uh, just as we began it. And so we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would teach us from your word, that you would uh, give us uh, ears to hear and eyes to see and a mind to understand and a heart to receive everything that you have for us in the scriptures. Uh, Speak to us by the power of your spirit uh, this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 7, uh, beginning with verse 8. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. We uh, live in a day that is obsessed with change. New Year's resolutions, self-help gurus, personal trainers, life coaches, best-selling authors, everyone is either looking for change or offering some program promising it. But as many of us know, the more we try to change, the more things seem to stay the same. And we need to be honest here, as we read through the scriptures, even the apostle Paul talked about how difficult it was to change. In Romans chapter 7, he said, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, did you ever notice how easy it is to pick up bad habits and how hard it is to start good ones? Why is that? That brings us to our passage Uh, this evening. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 7. And uh, you, you might wonder, why, Luke, did you choose this passage of all passages? And there are really two reasons Uh, The first was there are things in this passage, there were things in this passage that I didn't understand. 
In fact, there were even things in this passage that I didn't like. Uh, It's talk of punishment in verse 11, what particularly made me uncomfortable. And I think as a general rule, if there is something in the Bible you don't understand, and especially if there's something in the Bible that, that you don't like, something that makes you uncomfortable, rather than avoiding that thing, you should press into it, right? Go at it. Why? Because if there's something in the Bible that I don't understand, that means there's an opportunity for me to learn. And if there's something in the Bible that I don't like, something that makes me uncomfortable, that means this is an opportunity for me to grow. Uh, I know in the end, it's, it's, I'm the one that's wrong and the Bible is right. Uh, so as long as there's something here that I don't like, this is an opportunity for me to change and grow. And so if you find something in the Bible you don't understand, if you find something in the Bible you don't like, I would encourage you always to press into that, right? And that's what we're going to do this evening, press into these verses. Reason number two is why, of why this passage is that I, I believe that repentance is the secret forgotten power of the Christian life. I'm not forgetting about the Holy Spirit there, who is also the secret and often forgotten power of the Christian life. But repentance is one of the primary tools the Spirit uses in our lives to bring about spiritual growth and change. And repentance is not something you do once in the Christian life and then push it aside, glad you got that over with so you can move on to other things. As Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So repentance should be a daily part of the Christian life, and it's the secret power of Christian growth. If you're struggling in the Christian life, uh, I would bet that one of the reasons is some misstep when it comes to repentance. So repentance is this uh, uh, secret and often forgotten power of the Christian life, an instrument used by the Holy Spirit who is, of course, the power of the Christian life. Now, it's also a bonus that many of you just talked about repentance in your small groups, uh, and so this will hopefully confirm and solidify in your minds and hearts the importance of repentance. Uh, now, you may be, you may be uh, a bit uncomfortable with what we talk about tonight. I mean, repentance, grief, punishment, but I promise you that this is actually about your growth in grace. And so to that end, we'll look at five things, Uh, the simple act of repentance, the instrumental cause of repentance, the internal source of repentance, the ultimate result of repentance, and the external fruit of repentance. So first, the simple act, the simple act of repentance. What do we mean by repentance? Uh, and, And we'll nuance this as we go, but we need some kind of a working definition to get us started. And the primary Old Testament word that describes repentance means generally to turn, uh, as in to turn from sin and to God. And when Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple, he prays that if God judges his people because of their sin, and they then pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, then hear in heaven and forgive. Uh, the New Testament has a similar word for turn. You see it in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where Paul says of the Thessalonians that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they turned from, uh, from idols to God. Uh, but the New Testament has other words for repentance, uh, including the most common, which means to have a change of mind or a change of thought or a change of attitude, a change of heart, which leads to a change of life. Uh, This word in the ESV is pretty much always simply translated repent. 
And so to repent is to have a complete reversal in your thinking, particularly about yourself, your behavior, your way of life, and then to actually change course as a result. Uh, repentance is, is often in scriptures, uh, in the scriptures, connected with faith as two sides of a coin, right? Together they make up conversion. And so we must turn from our sin, that is properly speaking repentance, and we must turn to Christ, which is properly speaking faith. But however, to do one is to do the other, right? Turning is one motion. You turn from the east and toward the west in one move. You turn away from the dark and toward the light. You turn from sin and to God. Uh, And so sometimes in scripture, repentance and faith are put together, like in Mark 1.15, where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So repent and believe. And sometimes, though, repentance is used to refer to the whole of conversion, uh, as in Luke 24. In Luke 24, 45 uh, to 47, we're told that Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so scripture teaches that Jesus died for sin, he suffered, and then rose from the dead, conquering both sin and death, with the result that now repentance is proclaimed, offered, commanded, so that people would turn from their sin and find forgiveness in Jesus. And so here in Luke 24, repentance refers to the whole act of turning from sin into Christ. Repentance then is the the path to life in Christ as we turn away from our sin and as we turn to Jesus. And so by repentance we mean to turn. It's a change of mind, a change of heart about yourself, about your sin, which leads to a turning from it to God. Uh, you, you can maybe already see why this is such is so important for change. If we turn from our sin and turn to God, we leave our sin behind and we find new life in Jesus. And as long as we cling to our sin, even as Christians, we don't experience fully the life that is ours in Christ. And so the, 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 the simple act of repentance is to turn. What about the instrumental cause? I, I can guess that this is true of you as well, but I don't, I don't like to feel bad. And I certainly don't like it if you make me feel bad, uh, not you in particular, but you know, the, gen, the, the general you. Uh, I don't want guilt trips. Uh, I, don't, I don't want people to make me feel bad about myself. And, and I, I see that if you make me feel bad about myself, I just see that as a guilt trip, period. I don't want to be told I'm wrong that I have to change. But here's the thing, no change ever happened because someone told you that you were headed in the right direction when you weren't. If we're driving together and you make a left when you should make a right, and if I don't say anything, that's not going to get us back on course. If you made a wrong turn, you you don't need a guilt trip, but you do need honest, dispassionate correction. Hey, Hey, you were supposed to make a right there, not a left. Now, there's a lot behind this passage in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul has this long-standing relationship with the Corinthians. And at least a little of the backstory is necessary to understand what's going on here. It seems that someone in that church had sinned grievously against Paul. Uh, and, And the rest of the church didn't come to Paul's defense. They didn't say anything about it. They simply stood by and watched as Paul was attacked or belittled or denounced. And as a result, Paul wrote them a letter. It's actually a letter that was written between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So it's a letter we don't have. Uh, 
He wrote them a letter. He says in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, out of much anguish and affliction of heart and with many tears. He wrote because his friends, those to whom he had preached Christ, those who believed his gospel, simply stood by and watched when someone in their midst attacked Paul and his ministry. And so Paul writes a letter, sometimes called the painful letter, calling this church to repentance. In verses 8 and 9 of our text say this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. The means God used to bring about repentance in the church at Corinth was Paul's letter. Now, we can look at this from a couple of angles. You know, Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He wrote half the New Testament. So we might say, well, uh, this is Paul in his apostolic role uh, bringing God's word, and God's word uh, brought repentance. And, of course, that's true. But while we have many of Paul's letters, we actually don't have this painful letter. And so we could also simply say God used one Christian's rebuke to bring about the repentance of other Christians. Right? Paul spoke into their lives, and the result was their repentance. I call uh, the, the rebuke the, the instrumental cause of repentance. I know that's kind of a funny phrase, but I, I mean, what is it, what is the means that God uses to bring about repentance in the life of the believer or in the life, uh, you know, the initial repentance in the life of the non-believer? And at least one of the means that God uses, and there are others in the scriptures, but the one that is talked about here is rebuke. Paul writes this painful letter calling them to repentance. Again, there are other means, but this is the one talked about here. Paul rebuked the church at Corinth, and the result was their repentance. Now, Paul himself uh, did not cause their repentance. Uh, God is the one who grants repentance, but Paul's rebuke was the instrument that God used. And so Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And you see, there Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness because God may perhaps grant repentance. And so the instrumental cause is God's servant, particularly pastors and elders here in these passages, but any faithful believer patiently, gently correcting another so that God may perhaps grant repentance. And so to repent is to to change our mind about ourselves, about our sin, and then to turn from our sin and to God. It comes about when God uses patient correction to grant a change of heart. Which brings us then to our next point, the internal source of repentance. Have you ever felt bad about something you did? Uh, What what did you feel bad about? Uh, Did you feel bad because things didn't turn out the way you hoped? Or did you feel bad because you did something and then felt ashamed of what you did? Or did you feel bad because you got caught? Did you feel bad because of the consequence of your action? Or did you feel bad because the thing in and of itself was wrong? You know, not all bad feelings are the same. Uh, there, there is a false guilt that we sometimes experience. Sometimes we feel bad when we didn't do anything wrong, right? We, we feel shame even though we didn't do anything shameful. 
there is a misdirected guilt, right? Guilt not because we sinned, but because of the consequences. Uh, that, that's what Paul calls in verse 10, worldly grief. You see, worldly grief is, you, you see it in the criminal who gets caught, but he's sad, not because of what he did, but because he got caught. <laughs> he's sad because of the consequences. He's sad because of the jail time. He's sad because of the relational fallout. You know, maybe some shame with those who didn't know his seedy underside. Uh, there can be layer upon layer of worldly grief. Worldly grief is, is the sadness because of the this-worldly consequences of our sin. It may include guilt. It may include shame. It may include despair. But it's still worldly grief. Cain was sad when punished for killing his brother, but he was sad for what it meant for him. He was not repentant. Esau was sad when he lost his father's blessing, which he himself had sold for a pot of soup, but he was sad at the loss. He wasn't repentant for his folly and his sin. He was just upset at what he lost. Uh, Judas is sad when he saw that Christ was to be put to death, but he wasn't repentant. He didn't turn and find forgiveness like Peter. He despaired and ended his life. He couldn't live with what he did. The guilt, the shame ate him up, and so he put an end to it. But he didn't repent. He didn't actually admit his wrong and turn from it and to God. That's the difference, Paul says, from uh, godly grief. Godly grief isn't focused on the consequences alone. Rather, it's focused on the sin itself. Godly grief isn't focused on what the world says about our behavior. It's focused on what God says about it. Worldly grief says, what, what I did didn't work out. And I'm sorry that it didn't work out. Godly grief says, what I did was wrong, and I'm sorry that I did it. Worldly grief is directed toward the self. My actions have brought me pain, and I can't live with this pain that I'm experiencing. Godly grief is directed toward God. My sin grieves God's heart, and I don't want to grieve the heart of God. And so the internal source of repentance is this godly grief. I, I feel bad because I've sinned against God, the one who loves me. And some people think you should never feel bad about anything today. Never make people feel bad, right? Never, never make kids feel bad. Always be positive. Always praise. Uh, I'm actually not so sure what world such people are living in, but it's not the real world. Right? Look around. We live in a world where people do bad things. I'm not saying we should berate them or belittle them or be unkind to them. By no means. We must never seek to manipulate people into feeling bad, ever. Again, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, correct them with gentleness. But even gentle correction may lead to godly grief. And we need to be willing at times with wisdom, with patience, with gentleness to allow God to use us to bring about godly grief. Not to inflict it, not to keep at it until somebody really feels bad about themselves. That's not what I'm saying. Don't mishear. That's not your job. Your job is to be humble and honest with others, which God may use to bring about godly grief. I should say we should be careful about prescribing certain levels or a certain amount or a certain kind of grief or sadness over sin. It will be different for every person and every sin. We see that in scripture. Different people repent in different ways, right? They have different levels, different amounts of grief, and that's okay. The million-dollar question is not how much or what amount or what level or what kind, but 
what do you do when you feel this godly grief? What do you do with it? Where does it go? And you have a couple of options, right? Some people refuse to admit that they're wrong. They dig in their heels and they stew in anger. How dare you correct me? And some people wallow in self-pity. Oh, I know, I'm such a terrible person, woe is me. Some people self-medicate, right? With social media or movies or music or drugs or alcohol or whatever, anything to distract us from what is really bothering us. But Paul says in verse nine that he rejoices, and we'll come back to that, his rejoicing, but he rejoices not because they were grieved, but because they were grieved into repenting. When you feel godly grief about your sin, the only way forward is to repent, It's to be honest. You, you see your sin for what it is. You, you own it as your own. You, you did it. You can't blame someone else. You can't make excuses. And then you confess it to God. You, you disassociate yourself from it by confessing it as wrong. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, the, the prodigal son says. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I, I see what I did. I take full responsibility for it. It was wrong. That's the heart of repentance right there, to see, to own, to confess. I see what I did. I take full responsibility. It was wrong. I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me. John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, boasting in what we do is a kind of anti-confession, right? It's, it's, it's confessing what we did, but in the wrong way. Some people boast about their sin, right? Look at me, right? I've done it again. I'm, I'm the baddest person in town. Uh, bad, bad Leroy Brown, right? Uh, boasting involves a kind of honesty about the fact that you did something without brokenhearted recognition of the sinfulness of the thing that you did. It's not real confession because it's not honest about the sinfulness of the thing. Repentance involves a change of mind and heart about ourselves and our behavior. It involves seeing ourselves for who we are, sinners deserving judgment. And thus we confess, then we confess that to God. We confess and find forgiveness in Jesus' name. And so to repent is to, to have a change of our mind and our heart, to turn from our sin, to turn to God. It comes about in, in many ways, one of which is when God uses patient correction to grant a change of heart. It begins with godly grief over what we have done in sinning against God. And then what's the result? Paul says, uh, talks about the ultimate result of repentance. Uh, but first, notice what, what Paul says is the result of worldly grief. When people feel bad that they've been caught or that life isn't going their way, where does that go? Paul says in verse 10, worldly grief produces death. Why? Well, where does worldly grief go? It goes to despair. Again, consider Judas. Uh, the more we look at ourselves, the more we look at our circumstances, the more we look at our abilities and our failures, the further we go down the spiral. The bigger the hole we have dug for ourselves, the less possible it is for us to dig ourselves out. And if all we're doing is focus, focusing on our behavior and its consequences, that will lead to despair. What hope is there in worldly grief? Right? If, if you've wasted all your money on foolish things, the bank won't forgive you. Uh, if you've ruined your reputation, if you've done things that are shameful even in the world's eyes, that may stick with you for the rest of your life. 
If you've spent your college years partying instead of honoring Jesus in your studies, that may affect your ability to get and hold a job for years to come. This world is terribly unforgiving. And if that is what causes you grief, worldly grief produces death. This is why worldly sadness so often leads to suicide, right? That's when, when somebody is so grieved about life and its circumstances, they can't imagine any other way out. This is why the knowledge of sin is actually part of the good news. And did you ever think that sin could be good news? How so? Because if you have sinned, not just made a mistake, not just broken a civil law, uh, not just been unfaithful in your relationships, your earthly relationships, but if you have sinned, and if you call it what it is, you can be forgiven. In present worldly consequences, be what they may, God stands ready to forgive the repentant sinner. Jesus says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for sinners. And if you are a sinner here tonight, right, not just mistaken, not just broken, not just confused, if you are a sinner, Jesus came for you. Repent. See your sin for what it is. Own it. Don't make excuses. Confess it to God. And what? God is faithful and just to forgive. The Westminster Confession of Faith says of repentance, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. I'll read that again. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great, no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Repentance leads to salvation without regret. If you truly turn from your sin and find salvation in Jesus, that is something you will never regret. That is something that will never cause grief or sorrow or guilt or shame. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So to repent is to change our mind and turn from sin. It comes when God uses patient correction to grant a change of heart. It most often begins with godly grief over what we have done in sinning against God, a recognition of uh, the, the, the true uh, reality of what we have done. It leads to salvation, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And finally, we have the external fruit of repentance. Well, what, again, is the external fruit of worldly grief? It, it's either cover up or make up, right? Either pretend everything is okay or attempt to make things right. We scramble thinking, maybe I can fix this. We do damage control. We go into spin mode. Maybe I can make this look a little better than it really is. But here's the thing. Repentance, too, involves a desire to make things right, but not make yourself look better because you've already admitted how bad you really are. After you've been honest, your desire is not to simply fix your reputation, but your desire is to genuinely make things right. Why? Because you've changed your mind about things. You, you no longer see your pursuit of your comfort, your pleasure, your ease, your happiness, your agenda, your wealth, your career, your family, your legacy as the most important thing. Now you see that you were wrong and you want, genuinely want what is right. Which brings us to verse 11. 
Paul says in verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, now that you've had this change of heart, you desire to put things right. Remember the situation, by the way, right? The Corinthians had allowed someone to sin against Paul in some way that we don't fully know, but to slander him, to speak against him, to, to belittle him. Somehow these, they, were, they were attacking Paul and his apostolic ministry, no small thing. And they, his friends, just let it go. They backed down. They, they didn't come to his defense. Well, now what? Now that Paul has written this letter and they've come to repentance, they are eager to clear their name. It's not a desire to prove their innocence, but to put things right. It's not a desire to show that, that they were never wrong in the first place, but to show that while I was wrong, now I'm seeking to make amends. The indignation is toward the one who wronged Paul. Once they were apathetic towards sin, now they are indignant. The fear is probably the thought, well, how could we have let this go so long? Their longing is to be restored to Paul. Their zeal is for what is right. Their punishment, there it is, that word punishment. Their punishment is not self-flagellation. Uh, I think when I've read this verse in the past, I've wondered, what, what is Paul talking about? Their punishment uh, because of their repentance. And you know, the, the, what came to my mind was always this kind of self-flagellation, like I'm beating myself up now that I've done, uh, now that I realize that I'm wrong. That's not what Paul is talking about. The word means to bring justice. They bring justice to the one who wronged Paul. Their repentance is shown in seeking justice in this situation. Where they once allowed injustice to flourish, they now root it out and seek to put things right. At every point, Paul says, they have proven themselves innocent in the matter, meaning they are no longer implicit in this person's sin. They have repented of their involvement. They have put things right. Now, we need to be careful, of course. Repentance is not an act by which I earn salvation. Paul is not saying, now that you've put things right, now you can be forgiven. That's not what he's saying. No, verse 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Verse 11 is then the fruit of that. Repentance cannot be an act by which I earn salvation because repentance is always a turning from my actions altogether and turning to trust in the actions of another. Notice, by the way, the result for Paul. The result for Paul, the fruit of repentance, their repentance for Paul. Verse 7, I rejoice. Verse 9, I rejoice. Verse 13, we are comforted. Their repentance leads to Paul's comfort and joy. Joy at seeing God's people walk a little closer with Jesus. Joy at personal reconciliation where there was brokenness in their relationship. Repentance brings joy. In fact, we could actually go a, a step further. Repentance brings joy to the heart of God. When Jesus in, uh, I think it's Luke 15, is telling three parables. He tells the, uh, the parable of the, the, the searching shepherd, the parable of the searching widow, and the parable of the searching father. In each case, when the, when the sheep is found, when the coin is found, when the son is found, what's the immediate result? The immediate result is the one who is searching goes and throws a party and rejoices that the coin, that the sheep, that the son has been found. And in each parable, it's the father 
who is the one who is rejoicing. It's God who is rejoicing over one sinner who comes to repentance. And so repentance, one of the fruits of repentance is joy. To repent is to change our mind and turn from sin. It comes about when God uses patient correction to grant a change of heart. It begins with godly grief over what we have done and sinning against God. It leads to salvation, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And the fruit is a desire to put things right, not to earn salvation, but as an overflow of it, and joy as we rejoice in our reconciliation to our Father in heaven. Now, we should mention one caution at this point, which is as we talk of repentance and new life in Jesus, we might be tempted to think, if I can just get this formula down, uh, you said, Luke, this is the secret power of the Christian life, right? So if I can just get this formula down, then I'll be done with sin and I'll be on my way to growing every day in every way. But the Heidelberg Catechism says this in question 114. It says, can those converted to God keep the commandments perfectly? And its answer is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. And so we strive after holiness. Holiness is beautiful. We serve a holy, good, and beautiful God. We are made to be like him, and so we must strive after holiness. When Christ commanded us to repent, he was calling us into a life of repentance. But just because it is a life of repentance means it will not be finished in this life. It is an everyday thing. And so we move forward looking to the journey's end at Jesus' return and the renewal of all things, the day when repentance is no more, when we will never need to turn again because our hearts are wholly centered on the beauty of God revealed in his son Jesus. Until then, let us turn from sin and to Jesus, the savior of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would grant us repentant hearts. Help us to see our sin, to grieve over it, and to turn from it and to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.